Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. Now, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. Remember gel pens? Raise your hand up, all right? Gel pens? Okay. So gel pens were like all the rage. Hey, there we go. I'll stop yelling at you. Gel pens were like all the rage at this point, okay? So this was like mid-90s and... Um, that some of the kids at this school had like the, the multi, you know, hundred pack of gel pens that like they had a special carrying case, you know, and they'd pop it open, use it for all their different assignments. And, and we had a Bible study at the school. It was a Christian private school. And one of the crazy things that uh, we did, you know, obviously we opened the Bible every day and learned through it. And some of these girls that had these amazing gel pens, they would literally underline every single word in the Bible in a different gel pen color. And it looked amazing. I mean, like I loved it. I was so jealous. I wanted my own gel pens. But again, this was a time in our life where we didn't have that much money. We couldn't afford gel pens. Um, but one time, one Saturday, me and my parents were at a garage sale. And sure enough, there was like this five-pack of gel pens at this garage sale. And I think they were mismatched, but didn't matter. There's five gel pens, and we could afford them. So I begged my parents, please let me have these five gel pens. And they were like, all right. They broke down, got me the five gel pens. So I take them. They're like my most prized possession as a second grader. So I take them to the school, and I'm using them all the time, and I'm loving them like every assignment. This is before the teachers like made you use red or, or excuse me, black or blue ink. Like you could use the gel pens. So I used them for everything and just watched in horror as like the little ink thing just kept going down farther and farther as I used them all the time. But this one time, I was using them, and they were out on my desk at school, and then I had to go to the bathroom. And so I raise my hand, ask if I can go to the bathroom. So I go to the bathroom, and I come back from the bathroom, and the gel pens are gone. Okay? I was not a happy camper. I was very upset. And I look around, and I see that I'm, I'm trying to find them, sleuthing. Is anybody using my gel pens that I can see? And nobody was using my gel pens, but I noticed that there were like three or four girls that were in the class normally that were not there at the time. And these were girls that usually gave me kind of a hard time. Again, back to the math equation I showed you earlier. So they, I was like, man, this, they must have my gel pens. And so I started asking around, hey, is so-and-so? Is they? And sure enough, this group of girls had my gel pens. And so I'm walking around. Like I leave, I like make up an excuse, like I have to go to the nurse or something. I'm walking around the top floor of this school looking for these girls with my gel pens. And finally I figure out that they're in the girls' bathroom. Brilliant idea. I can't go in there, right? So they're like barricaded in there with my gel pens, using them. And so I'm knocking on the door, I go get a teacher, it's like a huge scene, I make it into this huge scene, and the teacher comes, they knock on the door, the teacher goes in, you know, talks to the girls, whatever, and then a couple of minutes later, I'm just standing in the hallway, and the teacher opens the door, and one by one, these girls come out, and it was like, oh yeah, of course, you'd be involved in this, yep, and the next one would come out, oh yeah, you've always had it out for me, right? And the last girl to walk out was Mary, and it was like my little heart was broken. I mean, I was, like, devastated, and her head was down, you know, and she had my last gel pen. Like, it was, like, five of them. Each of them took a gel pen, you know, and she's walking out with her head down. And I got all my gel pens back, but my relationship with Mary wasn't ever the same again after that. And that's the thing about sin. Sin inflicts two different kinds of pain. 
direct pain and indirect pain. And the direct pain of my gel pens was that I didn't have them anymore, and I loved them, and I wanted them back, right? But that direct pain was resolved when I got my gel pens back. But there's this indirect pain, and it comes from the broken relationship that I had with Mary, one of the only people that had been nice to me at this school. And many times, as you well know, the broken relationship, the indirect pain, takes a lot more time to heal than the direct pain. So when someone chooses to, to sin, to give, influence, to give in to the influence of evil, and they, they hurt themselves or someone else, like I said, the Bible calls that sin. And we've all experienced this. We've all been hurt, right? We've all hurt ourselves or someone else. And this is why Romans 3.23 says that everyone has sinned. The Bible also speaks to this fact that God hates sin, And it's not because God is some legalist holding every human to some impossible moral standard, but he hates to see his children get hurt. That's why he hates sin. He hates the direct and indirect pain that come from the choices that we make to hurt ourselves or to hurt someone else. You see, God created this perfect world filled with perfect peace between himself and all of creation, including humanity. And sin is an affront to that perfect world he created. It's an assault on the peace he intended, and it breaks our relationship with each other, and it breaks our relationship with God. Now, you and I have both probably heard or or even thought something to the effect of, well, if God is so good, like everybody says that he is, like the Bible says that he is, then he should just get rid of all the sin in the world so no one gets hurt anymore, right? Have you all ever thought that? Give me a nod. You've thought something like that. And that's true. He could just snap his fingers and he could get rid the world of sin, but that would mean ridding the world of us too. Because here's the problem. The influence of evil that we see all around us isn't just affecting everyone else. A lot of times we like to think that it is. We like to think it's someone else's problem. It's an exterior problem, but it's affecting us too. Each and every one of us have given in to this temptation and we've sinned. We've hurt ourselves or someone else not just once or twice. It's something that we continue to battle against and struggle with day after day after day. So God looked down on this perfect world he created and that we broke, and as he did, he could have very easily thrown his hands up and said, well, they just deserve what they get. They deserve this broken world that they've created, full of people hurting themselves and hurting each other. He could have turned his back on us. He could have gone somewhere else and started over. He could have eradicated sin from the world. Yeah, but he, could have, he would have had to eradicate us too. But he didn't do any of those things. He looked down on this broken world like a loving father looks down on his hurting children. And he was filled with grief for us because of his great love and mercy. He was also filled with pain because of the intimate relationship that he has seen broken with us and with him. And so he chose to enact a plan that would rid the world of evil and the effects of sin without ridding the world of us too. There's a pastor named Tim Mackey and he says it like this, this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. God's plan to rid the world of sin and evil without ridding the world of humanity is most often referred to as atonement. 
anybody heard that word? Raise your hand up a little bit if you've heard that word before. Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, defines atonement as reparation for an offense or injury, the act of making amends, offering expiation, or giving satisfaction. To define it with the terms that we've been using this morning, atonement is fixing the direct and indirect consequences of sin. That's what atonement is, fixing the direct and indirect consequences of sin. On a spiritual level, this means mending the broken situation and the broken relationship, both between God and humanity as well as between humanity and humanity with each other. Now, chances are, if you've been around the church for even a little bit of time, you've heard this term, atonement. It's one of those parts of Christianity that we have been arguing about and, and honestly poorly understanding for 2,000 years. And here is where most Christians get stuck. You see, we believe that what Jesus accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection, we believe that it fixed the brokenness caused by our sin. Most Christians, most every Christian would tell you that. Like, I believe what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection worked. I believe it fixed the brokenness caused by sin. We just aren't sure how. We aren't sure why it had to be that way. We aren't sure why God chose that plan. So in an effort to explain how it worked, there have been many so-called atonement theories proposed throughout the centuries. You may have heard some of their names. The moral influence theory, the ransom theory, the Christus Victor theory, satisfaction theory, penal substitutionary theory, governmental theory, and scapegoat theory. These are all various interpretations of atonement and how it worked. In each of these theories, they have, have great theologians with their names behind them. They have Bible verses that they can pull out and they can use to support these theories. I, I honestly find them all to be useful in their own ways, but ultimately I find them inadequate in helping us fully understand who Jesus is and what he has done. No theory can explain that to us. I like the way scholar N.T. Wright says it. It is easy to imagine that atonement carries a single and obvious meaning. It does not. During our journey since August, when we started it, of a year in the story, we have been witnesses to this truth time and time again. Our boxes for God are much too small, our understanding of his story much too narrow, and our comprehension of his great love and power much too limited. God is so much bigger than we've been led to believe. He is so much better than we could ever imagine. This is true of every part of God's great story, but especially the climax. That is the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of God in the flesh, of Jesus Christ leaving the perfection of heaven, coming to the brokenness of earth, living, dying, and coming back to life. The climax of the story. It's better than we could ever imagine. And as the Apostle, Apostle Paul so appropriately says in his letter to the church in Corinth, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, the most important, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He uses that little terminology twice, according to the scriptures. And it's scriptures, plural. Not just one or two scripture verses, but all of them. And this 
understanding of atonement and understanding of the story of Jesus prevents us from doing our kind of favorite Christian pastime, which is grabbing a couple of Bible verses to support whatever theory that we currently hold. Paul says that Jesus Christ accomplished something through his death and resurrection that is explained only by looking at the larger story that the Bible is telling. The scriptures, not just a single scripture. So that is exactly what we're going to do in this series that we are starting this morning called In My Place. So over the next three weeks, we're going to look at atonement by tracing the theme of this Lamb of God, this sacrificial lamb throughout God's great story in the Bible. So we're going to begin today, this morning, by looking at atonement in the Old Testament something called the sacrificial system, where animals, particularly lambs, were used to atone for sin. Now, this is an overview, so we won't hit on everything, but I hope it gives us a good foundation of understanding as we move forward. So that's today. Next Sunday, we'll look at atonement on the cross with Jesus, who was often called the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice. That's week two. And then week three, April 21st, that's on Easter Sunday, We'll finish this series by talking about the resurrection of this Lamb of God and living inside of his kingdom, the reigning Lamb of God. So as we trace this understanding, this theme of the Lamb of God all throughout the pages of Scripture, my hope, our hope, is that we come to understand better God's great love for us, his relentless pursuit of relationship with us, even after we have broken it so many different times. How does that sound? Does that sound good? Okay, say sounds good if that sounds good. Ready? All right, great. Let's dive in. Our story begins back on the very first pages of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. God creates a perfect world, and that includes humanity, right, represented by Adam and Eve, to give into the, excuse me, made in his image and in intimate relationship with him. It's this beautiful, perfect, peaceful world. But it doesn't take very long for humanity to give in to the influence of evil, right? That's represented by the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And this causes God's perfect world to be broken by sin, and we immediately begin seeing the effects of that sin. The situation is broken. If you remember, Adam and Eve have to leave the garden. They can no longer do the work that God's called them to. There are consequences, right? Like all of the different things that are outlined in Genesis 3. So the situation is broken, but the relationships are also broken. Adam's and Eve, Adam and Eve's relationship is broken. Their kids' relationship is broken. If you remember the story of Cain and Abel. And worst of all, their relationship with God is broken. But like we said a moment ago, God doesn't just throw his hands up, get frustrated, turn his back, and walk away. He enacts a plan. He starts a process to restore his relationship with us to rid the world of sin without ridding the world of humanity. And this plan begins with God choosing a man named Abraham and his descendants who would eventually become known as the nation of Israel. And he restores his relationship with them. And this restored relationship with Israel was for the expressed purpose of Israel becoming a conduit, a catalyst, with which he would restore his relationship with the whole world. To put it simply... He restores his relationship with one family to begin restoring his relationship with all the families of the world. We see God explaining this plan to Abraham in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's house to the land I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here, listen to this part. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That's the catalyst part. He's using them. He's blessing them. He's restoring his relationship with them so that he can bless all of the nations in the world through them. And so it says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. God promises to use Abraham's family to bless the world by restoring their broken relationship with him, thus beginning the restoration of the broken relationship with all of humanity. Now, he also promises to give Abraham and his wife Sarah a bunch of offspring, which result in them becoming, quote, a great nation, like he just said. But that promise isn't actually fulfilled until Abraham and Sarah are 190 years old, respectively, when Sarah gives birth to a baby boy named Isaac. And I'm telling you all of this because the very first sacrifice in this kind of sacrificial system we're talking about, performed by God's covenant people, involves Isaac and Abraham. You may remember this story. It's important to know that Abraham and Sarah had waited a long time for Isaac to be born, 190 years, respectively. They loved and cherished him above all things. He was the promised one that would fulfill this promise from God. And this story of sacrifice happens in Genesis 22. So if you want to, if you have your Bible or your phone, I'd love for you to turn to Genesis 22 with me. We're going to kind of camp out there for the rest of our time together. Genesis 22. Now this story occurs when Isaac is probably in his late teens or early 20s, so keep that in mind. The verses will also be on the screen behind me. Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, and he took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. I'm always struck by Abraham's response to this horrible request from God, right? God's like, take your one and only son and kill him up on this mountain, burn him and sacrifice him to me, and Abraham Literally, he doesn't protest, he doesn't ask questions, he goes to sleep, he wakes up the next morning, he chops the wood, and he sets off for the mountain. Isn't that incredible? And I think a lot of us like to be like, what a man of faith, right? How incredible is this guy, Abraham? We like idolize this picture of him, like what a man of great faith. And he was a man of faith. I don't want you to hear me wrong, but not that long before this, Abraham and his wife Sarah were traveling through a a region that they didn't really know that much about, and it had a king, and Abraham was a little worried that the king would see how beautiful Sarah was and that he would kill Abraham and take Sarah for his wife, and so they make this plan at Abraham's behest to pretend that Sarah is his sister so he can give her to the king, and then he will have to save his own life. So this is a man that is flawed like all of us, who struggles, who makes mistakes, who loses faith, and comes back into it all the time. So I'm not saying that he's not a man of great faith. I think that he is, but I think there's more to the story of his reaction here than him just being this amazing dude. And you have to remember that when God first meets Abraham, he isn't a Christian. 
He isn't even a Jew. He isn't a part of God's people at all. In fact, God's people, as we know it today, didn't really exist at this point. Abraham is a pagan. And what that means is that he was only familiar with other gods and had no real knowledge of the one true God. He spent the first century of his life worshiping these other gods. And we know from ancient Near Eastern history that the vast majority of these other gods required child sacrifice. So this was not new to Abraham. When he gets this request from God, take your son Isaac, take him up on the mountain, kill him, he's like, all right, I guess he's just like all these other gods. I guess this is what it means to follow him. I guess this is what it means to worship him. It wasn't an abnormal request. He doesn't even plead with God to change his mind. And it's incredible. The New Testament book of Hebrews actually looks back on this story And this incident, and tells us that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead if he wanted to, not that he believed God wouldn't require him to kill his son. This was normal for Abraham. This is what he knew. This is what he'd grown up with. We pick the story back up in verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So you just see the two of them together, right? You see Isaac holding the wood. Abraham holding the fire, some kind of burning thing, probably on a torch, and then the knife in one hand as they travel alongside each other. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. I get get choked up thinking about walking up with my son and him asking me a question like this. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. God himself will provide the lamb. I want you to remember that phrase because that phrase is the foundational truth that all of atonement is built upon. Old Testament, New Testament, throughout God's great story, the foundational truth of atonement is that God provides the lamb. Verse 9. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Same reply from Genesis 12, when God first approached him, hey, Abraham, I want you to go to a new land. Hey, here I am. Same reply when he asked him to kill his son the first time yesterday in this story. Here I am, I'll go. Angel calls out, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. This very first sacrifice involving God's covenant people is about God providing the sacrifice. That is the point of this story. It is about God providing the sacrifice. It's about God revealing himself, not just to Abraham, but to all of us as our great provider, He distinguishes himself from the pagan gods that demand the sacrifice of humanity by being the one who provides the sacrifice for 
humanity. Do you see the distinction there, the beautiful distinction? If you forget everything else we've talked about this morning, remember what I'm about to say. The foundational truth that atonement is built on is this. God provides the sacrifice. That is the foundational truth of atonement. God provides the sacrifice. We break things, he fixes them. We sin, he sacrifices. We are in need, and he provides. He provides. When the people of Israel in the Old Testament, he provided animals for atonement. The book of Leviticus outlines this whole sacrificial system, and the key verse is Leviticus 17, 11. Here's what it says. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. I give it to you. I provide. This is the same picture we get from the story of Abraham and Isaac. You remember back in verse 7 when Isaac asks his dad where the sacrifice will come from. Father, the, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Do you remember what Abraham says? Verse 8. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Now that day, it wasn't a lamb that God ended up providing. It was a ram caught by its horns. But the lamb, the lamb would come later. Jesus began his ministry on earth by walking up to a guy named John the Baptist and asking for him to baptize him. Do you remember what John says when he sees Jesus coming his way? The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. First, God provided animals, and then he provided himself. Jesus is God in human flesh, come to be the ultimate and everlasting atoning sacrifice for sin, the one that fixes the broken situation and the broken relationships, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, the lamb that death couldn't hold down. And that's what all of next Sunday is going to be about, Jesus as this ultimate sacrifice for us. So to help prepare us for that this morning, I want to conclude our time together by looking at the full prophecy about Jesus from this prophet named Isaiah. And I want to invite you to close your eyes and reflect on the goodness of God and the person and work of Jesus predicted by Isaiah in this passage. The Lamb of God who brings atonement to anyone who asks him to. It starts like this. He grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green root, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. 
We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Let's pray. God, thank you for your good plan. Your good plan to to put on flesh, to come to earth and to bear the brokenness caused by our sin. Thank you that you are the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Thank you that you are the God who provides. Thank you that Abraham named that place the place where the Lord provides. And God, even though we are thousands of miles away and not on a mountaintop, God, we are in the place still where you provide. Thank you that you are a God who provides. We love you. Point us to the saving love of Jesus. Help us place our faith and trust in him today every day. In Jesus' name I pray.